Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens in the history of the church, things get messy. And boy, are they starting to get messy now after this past synod. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. We also want to say thank you to everyone who sponsored us on Patreon. We're slowly making our way to our modest goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. So if you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com backslash the messy reformation. We're also dreaming about ways to expand the reach and the content of the Messy Reformation. We've been listening to the struggles and the frustrations of our audience, and we're feeling compelled to meet some of those needs. So pay close attention over the next couple of weeks. We've got an exciting announcement coming your way. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, where Willie and I talk about some of the current issues going on in the Christian Reformed Church. I think that gets down to this other uh, idea that I've had or this other thing I've noticed um, that has really bothered me. And I don't want to step too far into the mud or it's maybe more than mud. It's maybe manure Mm -hmm. at this point. At this point. Um, But one of the questions I've been, and I'm not going, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm going to ask a question. Um, There's been a lot of frustration about I've heard a lot of frustration about what um, and I'm just going to say his name because everybody knows him Chad mm-hmm. what Chad Workoven did on the floor of Synod um, calling for discipline of Larry Louders right it's all public it's all out on on YouTube he announced so we know that it was Chad Workhoven that made that comment and a lot of people were really angry about that Um, That incident made it into Chong's editorial where he was talking about a loveless orthodoxy. Again, he, he misdescribed it. He described it. It wasn't described accurately, but I think that's what he was insinuating. So there's been a lot of people angry about what Chad Workoven did on the floor of Synod. And yet I haven't heard anyone get so wound up about what Larry Lauders did. Um, from not just from the floor of synod, he was given a mic and was speaking to the entire body of synod, and he basically told everyone to go jump in a lake. And um, we just debated these topics, this issue for, you know, eight, I don't have the exact numbers for, but four hours each probably, right? Four hours around the Human Sexuality Report, four hours around discipline over Neeland, and after all of that, he basically said. We're not going to listen to you. But he said it with a twinkle in his eye. He said it with a soft tone of voice. He said it, the tone in which he spoke it sounded loving. Mm -hmm. But the content was not loving. And uh, and now for uh, some people, 
and I'm not even saying this about Chad necessarily, but some people would say the tone in which and the way in which Chad spoke was unloving, even though it was orthodox, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of what how it's been portrayed. But um, I think for one, that's wrong. He was literally almost in tears as he was bringing it up. That's correct. Um, and so, uh, because he was shaken to his core when he said that. Um, but people are more worried about the tone in what which people are speaking rather than the content of what they're saying. And that, again, that that's kind of that loveless orthodoxy we're talking about, right? They're, they're talking about the tone of lovelessness in the context of orthodoxy. And we've almost gotten to this place where we're, we, we're fine with an unorthodoxy that sounds loving or sounds nice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if the, but so we, we've almost placed that loving part over top of orthodoxy and its importance. I completely agree with that. And I think if anybody wants to go back and go on YouTube and look and watch Synod, you're free to do that. And when you do that, you will find that certain things that are being said are just completely untrue (laughs) or people are misunderstanding it based off of tone, like you said. Uh, I, I think if people say, oh, Chad's tone was not loving, I'm sorry, but he got up at the microphone and said, it is with incredible and great sorrow in my heart that I move this. As he's just about in tears. So can we gauge the sincerity of that? I think we can. I I, I think even if you don't know him, should you at least give him the benefit of the doubt? Or are you so quick to just paint a narrative around him, maybe just because of what side he was on uh, with the issues of synod or maybe what classes he comes from. I, I, I think that's a part of it too. But having spent time with Chad at synod, uh, I understand, again, this is a man who loves people. And this is a man who, who cares so deeply about the church of Jesus Christ and about the gospel. So when he says, it's with incredible sorrow in my heart that I say these things, I think it was very evident that he meant it. And it was like you said, when Larry, very softly, very gently, with a twinkle in his eye, with a smile on his face, said, we're, we're not likely to do anything about this. We're not going to follow up with this. You are going to have to kick us out. You can look back. That is exactly what he said. I would just say, forget about his tone. Let's completely scratch his tone for just for just 10 seconds. Let's focus on what he said. Was what he said in any way in step with what Synod had decided? It was defiance. It was blatant defiance. It was explicit defiance. So I reject the notion that just because Larry said something in a certain way made him more loving than what Chad said and in the way that he said it. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we can get into, you know, I... We can get into there's a lot of conversation about was what Chad did within church order, right? Was it was it out of order? It was ruled out of order by the chair and by the body of synod. Sure. Or even was it wise? That's not even the conversation we're having. We're not saying whether he should have done it or shouldn't have done it, or was it wise or unwise, any of that. Um, we're just I'm just seeing this contrast and it and it bothers me. 
and uh, and maybe it gets down to you know um i i am at the core i'm still just some redneck farm boy from the midwest and uh and i have a lot more patience with the guy who's just going to tell me like it is mm-hmm. and, and tell me the truth and he's not always going to go about it in the right way sometimes he's going to say it too harshly whatever but i would rather deal with that person than someone who I feel like is being sly and, and conniving. And I'm not even necessarily saying that's what Larry Louders was doing. So don't read into that. But but I don't like people who I feel like I can't I can't trust because they're always being so manipulative and so careful about their language that that I don't really know where they're at on anything. I have a lot more patience for someone who's just gonna tell it like it is, which I suppose that's what I'm trying to do here too. And I probably bother people because I don't want to be the guy. I don't want to be this sly conniving. I mean, yeah, I don't want to take that too far, but I mean, that is really, you know, Satan is very smooth in in the way in which he speaks. Now that doesn't mean we need to be unwise in how we speak or unwise in how we use words, but there's this kind of slitheriness to, uh, to uh, the way that certain people speak. And uh, yeah. I, I, that's not who I want to be. And I don't have a lot of patience for that. I have a lot more patience for someone like Chad, who's just going to kind of tell it like it is. And, uh, but it's not because he's unloving. Like you said, I know Chad mm-hmm. and and I know the way I've watched him minister to people and, and he really loves people. He's a shepherd of the flock and he will lay down his life for his flock. And the Bible says greater love has no man than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. And I have no doubt in my mind that Chad would lay down his life. And so if our definition of love doesn't line up with scripture, then uh, we need to change our definition of love, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And I think it's also fair to point out that an appearance of love does not necessarily constitute true love. And an appearance of uh being maybe short tempered or uh, being short, being a short person, short fused or impatient or unloving, that doesn't constitute unlovingness. Uh, as somebody who has been married just shy of a year, uh, I, I've had to pay very close attention, not just to what I say, but also how I say it. And we both do very well to point out not just each other's tone in how they say it, but careful attention to what the words we said actually mean. I think if we go ahead and we just completely ignore the fact that words have meaning and words have definition, we're, we're giving ourselves over to the hand that culture is playing right now and saying that all that matters is tone. All that matters is is what the person meant, completely devoid of the definitions of the words that they used. So I I think we would do really well to pay attention to that. Yeah, amen. And even just jumping off of that, um, you know, when you read through scripture and uh, you read through the gospels in particular, what were the times that Jesus got particularly angry? Now, Peter, Peter put his foot in his mouth, right? Peter would say mm-hmm. things that he shouldn't have said. He would kind of blurt out. 
Um, and Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan, right? So mm-hmm. that was that's pretty rough. And so that, that gives us a warning to be careful there. Um, but when he went off and gave a list of woes, mm-hmm. um, what was he what was he bringing curses upon the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs? Or another way of saying that would be appearing to be loving without being loving. You're, you're a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. You're a pit of vipers because you're, you're trying to put on this appearance of something without the reality being there. And so um, that really ticked Jesus off. And what I really find funny is, is that when people start kind of accusing like us Orthodox or those who are more Orthodox on sexuality, they're trying to almost accuse us as being like legalistic, unloving Pharisees. And I'm looking and saying, maybe what Jesus was really angry about was this attempt to appear to be legalistic, but we're actually not legalistic. That's what Jesus was actually rebuking the Pharisees for, was trying to appear to be something that they were not. And he was calling it out over and over and over again. And so um, when people say, well, we want to appear to be loving, but not actually be loving, I think Jesus would say, woe to you, whitewashed tombs. Yep, I, I completely agree with, with all of that, yeah. I, I, don't have, I don't have very much to add, I, and I, I, I don't want to keep obviously beating a dead horse. I, I really think there's been a lot of good stuff said on this matter, but I, I just honestly think that we need to understand, yes, tone does matter, but so does content. And what was Jesus willing to call out? He was willing to call out both, like like you're like you're saying here. And I think if we want to be sanctified, if we want to grow in holiness by the power of the Spirit more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, then we ought to strive to be imitators of not just what he believed, but also what he said. So I, I really think everything you're saying is completely in lockstep with with how, with how the Gospels present Jesus to us. Yeah, amen. Thanks. Um, another thing I want to talk about, we've got a little bit of time yet, and so I think we might as well just dive in and maybe tick some more people off. But um, We're good at that, aren't the, we? Yeah, well, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not ticking people off for the sake of ticking people off. I'm trying, we want to have conversations about things that need to have conversations about, right? That's why we started this, this podcast. So I don't like making people angry. I don't like ticking people off, but we need to say things sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I want to dive back um, because something that I haven't heard talked about very much is, uh, so, so we talked a little bit about editor Chong's um, banner, his editorial that he wrote. Um, called Further From Revival, right? And uh, we talked about this claim about loveless orthodoxy, but but another claim that's been in there that I want to dive into more is that um, surrounding synod, and he said not just at synod, but before and after synod, there has been a spirit of censure and distrust. And uh, And I don't actually want to spend a lot of time talking about a spirit of censure. 
Um, because to be completely honest, I think that is a baseless, completely false claim that we don't even have to really spend any time. And we spent, there has been so much discussion on this topic that it's ridiculous to say that there was a spirit of censure. Agreed. But I do want to dive into and talk about a little bit further what he felt like was a spirit of distrust leading up to synod and coming out of synod. Um, I'd, what, how would you respond to someone saying that? <laughs> uh, probably harshly. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that, that that's very ironic for somebody who would post in our denominations magazine uh, things that are very contrary to what Synod had decided and very critical about those of us who do stand for orthodoxy. And he's writing things contrary to what we believe and about our confessions and just plainly about how God has spoken. I find it very ironic that somebody like that is saying, oh, you can't trust certain people. Well, of course I'm not going to trust that because you're completely undermining what Synod has done, uh, how Synod has spoken, about how God has spoken, and now you're you're calling me out for not, I mean, of, of course, the, the, the next thing that you're going to accuse me of is, is teaching the Bible to youth kids. <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I'm just, it, it's, it's, if it's, if, if that's the way that I'm going to be painted for this, then I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I do think there is a level of distrust that is healthy amongst us. And it is a way to just question uh, some of those who are not even necessarily in the denominational offices, but maybe those who we are in ministry next to. Um, I, I, I think these, these things are completely fair to call into question be, because of some of the things that are being said. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I, so I, I would actually agree with him that there is a general sense of distrust in, in our denomination. I think he actually nails that one. Um, I've got a lot I want to say about this, and so I want to be careful not to go off too far um, my, one of my frustrations, and I don't want to dive into this long, I've got something else I want to say, but one of my frustrations is, is when he's calling out this spirit of distrust, he's pointing it at the, those who are holding to an orthodox position on sexuality, like we were the distrustful ones. Um, and he never makes the counter accusation of those who are talking about all of the conspiracies going into synod and saying, Look at all of the distrust over there. It's uh, there, there's a hypocr hypocrisy there that that drives me crazy because I think there's distrust all over our denomination. It's going both ways. There's the revisionists don't have a strong level of distrust for for those holding to an orthodox position, and those holding to an orthodox position have a distrust for what's going on. I would say in general in our denomination, and I think that's true. Mm -hmm. And I and I want to say. How do you fix that then? Do you just rebuke everybody and say, you don't trust us. You better start trusting us. Is that, is that like, is that how we respond like to our, our spouse or is that how we would counsel somebody in a marriage where the spouses don't trust each other? It's just like, we'll just start trusting people. Duh. No, we, we there's, there's a level where you have to be trustworthy mm -hmm. in order to be trusted. And, uh, and I would really appreciate it if Editor Chong would, would grasp that the fact that people don't trust 
him. And the fact that people are questioning the banner and the seminary and the denomination is because they have lost our trust. They have done untrustworthy things. And as a result, people don't trust them. We're questioning what's going on because they're not accurately representing things. They're doing things that, that we would we didn't think that they were doing. And so they've lost our trust. I mean, I think that's an honest thing. And so what are they going to do about that to try to, to try to become trustworthy in our eyes once again? And another thing um, that was, that was interesting, and you can speak to this a little bit too. Mm. I saw people get so frustrated when people would question something. So we would question, you know, there was a conversation on the floor of Synod about, why are we changing our preaching requirements in the, in the seminary, right? And why are mm-hmm. we lowering these? And there was a sense of like, well, you should just trust us when we make these decisions. How dare you question us on this? Why, why is there such a lack of trust? And, uh, and I think, for one, there's two separate things going on. One is they have lost our trust and people don't trust them. So I think our, our institutions need to start earning our trust back. Uh, but two just questioning a leader on why they made a decision is not showing a lack of trust. It's actually doing due diligence in your job. And, and so like, I was super frustrated by that. I've been, I've been a board president of a school board and stuff. And I've been that through a fairly tumultuous time where I was getting questioned all of the time about why are you doing this? Why are you making these decisions? People were angry at me. And never once did I look at them and say, you just need to trust me. You just need to trust me to to do whatever I want with this school. That's why you put me in position as board president. I was like, no, they have a right to know why we're doing what we're doing. I have to answer these questions. I, I fully expect them to question me and what I'm doing. And if I don't have a good answer for them, maybe I should start questioning myself. I would follow up with the rhetorical question were the Bereans being distrustful when they were carefully examining the word of God for themselves to determine what they were hearing was true or not I mean did did their pastor say no 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 don't go home and read your Bibles and study closely uh just trust me and just trust what I'm saying <laughs> I, I I don't think that that ever entered into the mind of, of of anybody in that context there and I think in the same way just because people call things into question for legitimate reasons does not mean, it doesn't mean a couple things. First, it doesn't mean we think you're terrible people. It just means we have very serious concerns and questions about decisions that are being made. And also, I do think you might be able to speak to this. I think with some of the, the leaders of these institutions, there is kind of sort of an attitude of, uh, why don't you trust us? Or even necessarily, I don't want to be held accountable to anybody. I, I, I do think there is a little bit of that going on too. Um, not necessarily that there are laws unto themselves, but they do forget that we are a denomination that owns our institutions. Uh, Calvin University, Calvin Seminary is owned by us. And therefore, the output of what happens there, uh, it, to some extent, they are answerable to us for. 
so I, I think it's completely in line for us to ask the question, why are these things coming out of the campus of Calvin University? Or why are the requirements for, for preaching in languages being lowered at Calvin Theological Seminary? These are perfectly legitimate questions. And because these are institutions that are owned by the churches, then I really think we have the right to be asking those questions, and they are under obligation to be able to give answer to those objections. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, I think so. And I, well, I think what happens is, you know, I've thought about this just in my own life. You know, you get so caught up in the process of changing something that you forget that not everybody else has been part of that conversation. And so people start asking you questions and you kind of just have this gut reaction like, oh my goodness, we've already answered this question like 500 times. We've already explained it 500 times. Why are you asking me this? Realizing that, yes, you as the leader who's been going on this process over a period of one or two years, you have answered that question 500 times, but this person is coming straight from them, right? And so there's there's a sense where you get tired of doing that and uh, and you kind of forget that other people haven't been through the same process as you. So that's just like a danger of leadership in general. Um, but it's also a danger as a leader, you just need to be aware of and you need to get <laughs> get over it. People are going to question what you're doing and why you're leading them in a certain direction. And and they're going to ask you the same question over and over again. And, and the reality is you're going to have to answer the same question over and over again to the same people. Sometimes they, they are going to ask you, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this over and over and over again? And part of your job as a leader is to keep answering the question and, and moving forward and not just getting angry and frustrated that people are asking that question. So there's a level of that in there too, just, I don't necessarily think that they're fully trying to be a law unto themselves. There, there is mm-hmm. a sense when you get into um, a leadership position like that, like at the, at the seminary or at the college where you're like, Hey, I'm, I've been doing this a long time. I know what I'm doing, right? I'm in this world. You just don't quite understand because you're just not in this world. And so just let me do this because I really know what I'm doing and you don't really understand the context. And uh, that's not a good thing. It happens. And mm-hmm. there's a sense where like, yeah, you are a specialist, you've got this, but that should just mean in general that you have a better opportunity to answer my questions for me from a specialist point of view then, rather than saying, Hey, I'm an expert at this. You just need to trust me. No, I, I would rather see like, Hey, I'm an expert at this. Let me explain to you then in a way that that helps you understand why we're making these changes and why it's better for the church or for the gospel or whatever. And so um, those are just some of the things I'd, I'd like to see. I'd like to see changed. But but I, I do want to say, I mean, what 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 would you say? What types of things would you like to start seeing happen from our denominational institutions and agencies um, for them to earn back the trust of the people? Probably several things. Uh, first and foremost, this really does start with the staff and the faculty, I think. And anybody who does not hold to the doctrine of our church um, probably needs to be shown the door and then probably need to be filled with 
adequate people who are teaching according to the confessions of our church, or at least in light of that hermeneutic, I think. Uh, th that would be absolutely number one. And I do think the things that Stephen Terpster brought up uh, on the floor of Synod were completely appropriate. Um, or, or what other people had brought up at Synod uh, to the director of candidacy about the requirements for, for pastors coming out of seminaries. I, I think if we're going to see pastoral ministry as a long game, a long-term focus, then we need to understand that we need people entering into those offices who are as best equipped as they possibly can be, and they're not lowering requirements all in the name of efficiency. I, I really do think that a more adequate pastor going into the pulpit, especially with the cultural and ecclesiastical climate that we're experiencing today, having more tools in your tool belt are always going to be more useful than less. So I would say those are some things that I would probably need to see done um, or just adequate explanations about why they do what they do. I, I know we heard efficiency and I know they, they brought up the case. Well, every, every pastoral case is different. Every candidate is going to be different. That is true. But I do think that the general principle of an adequate preparedness going into pulpit ministry still applies. Yeah, I mean, and and just to take the bigger principle of what you're talking about, um, you know, you're focusing in on on the seminary, but even if you broaden that out to address uh, Calvin University, mm -hmm. and you broaden that out to address the banner, um, it's hard to trust someone when it constantly seems like they're trying to undermine the foundations of what you believe. Yes. Right? And so we... Um, I don't see that. I wouldn't, I, I want to be careful and say, I don't see that as whole coming out of Calvin seminary. Right. But, but there are professors there that, that have this feel that they're trying to undermine uh, what we're doing. And, you know, we know that at Calvin university, there's been some pretty public proclamations from professors there that they're trying to, they want to undermine uh, decisions and actions of the Christian reformed church. And so, um, why would we trust Calvin University if they have staff members who are doing that, right? And then the same thing is coming out of what's coming out of the banner when we look at the reporting from Synod and we think, I was at Synod. Were That's we at the same I, Synod? Yeah, we think, man, how are, how are you getting that out of what we saw at Synod? And we're thinking, this is not trustworthy reporting. You're you're giving a, a completely different picture than what we saw there. So how can I trust you? Or, or when you're putting out articles and pieces that seem to be undermining the foundations of what we believe as a denomination, again, why would we trust you? And so um, I, it may sound harsh. I suppose people can get angry about that. But I'm really just trying to get down to the root of why is there a lack of trust in, in, in our denomination for some of these agencies and institutions and it's because they've been, as you pointed out, they have people on staff who are who seem to be undermining the very nature of who we are and what we stand for. And so why would we trust them? And uh, if they want to re-earn our trust back, they maybe need to start doing some staffing changes and start changing the way they're communicating um, through their through their publications or even through their 
through the the teachers and the professors that they're hiring, um, then maybe, maybe they'll start earning our trust back. I, I completely agree with that. And I think just for me, some final thoughts on this come from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, when the author of Hebrews is telling people to obey and submit to the leaders that are over them, uh, he writes this, starting in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he goes on to say, why? For they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. So those who occupy not, not denominational offices, but also ecclesiastical offices, these people have to give an account to God for how they have shepherded the souls that God has entrusted to them. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. And then it's very interesting that the author makes this shift. Do this, let them do this without joy and groaning for that would be no advantage to you. To you who is under the authority of the leaders of this church. So generally speaking, yes, it is good for us to be honoring and submitting to the leaders, those whom God has placed in authority over us, who are shepherds of our souls, who will have to give an account to the chief shepherd. But that does not mean, and that does not necessitate, that they are completely and always above reproach, and that they can't be questioned. Uh, that's why we have things like examinations, to make sure that people are competent uh, to, to execute their offices. And that's why we have people walking alongside of us that we are in covenant with, to be making sure that we are walking forward according to the word of God by how he's revealed himself. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Dan DeGraff. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.